Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Nina Teicholz is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out her first appearance on Boundless Body Radio, back on episode 50. Nina Teicholz is the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, a professor adjunct at New York University's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, and an investigative science journalist and author. Her international bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise, has upended the conventional wisdom on dietary fat, especially saturated fat, and challenged the very core of our nutrition policy. The Big Fat Surprise was named a 2014 Best Book by The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Mother Jones, Kirkus Reviews, and Library Journal. Teichel's writing has also been published in the BMJ, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Independent, The New Yorker, and The Los Angeles Times, among others. As the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, a nonprofit, nonpartisan group that is free from industry funding, Nina has testified before the Canadian Senate and the U.S. Department of Agriculture about the need to reform nutritional guidelines so that they are based on sound science. Nina Teicholz, it is an absolute honor to welcome you back to Balanced Body Radio. Casey, it is great to be here. Thank you for having me on your show again. Absolutely. Such an honor. Um, last time I got a little choked up. I didn't get choked up this time, which is great, but um, I appreciate you so much for everything that you've done. You're such a stalwart you. and you have really stuck with this message despite maybe not pushing the ball forward as much as you would like. Um, but I really appreciate your work and, and how much change it's created in the world. So thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say, in preparation for this interview, I got to deep dive into your book again, which was fantastic. Um, I, I always forget, like I look at it on the shelf and I think, man, this thing's, you know, 480 pages. It's got lots of references. Like it's a big, heavy read, but you start reading it and it's, it, it doesn't read like a science book. It reads like a thriller. It's really fascinating. And like the first day I opened it up, I've read it like five times. I've listened to every podcast you've ever been on. And I've, I've read like 60 pages before I even like knew what time it was. It, it's so well written. <laughs> Thank you. That's super nice of you to say. I mean, the, the, I think it was The Economist that called it a nutrition thriller, um, which I thought was kind of an oxymoron. How can nutrition be thrilling? But of course, all of us here find it thrilling. And you just, you know, it's a great story. It continues to be an amazing story. And it's not, you know, there's another chapter of that book to be written. Yeah, can't wait. Um, I think it just speaks to you as far as an investigative journalist to make something, you know, as mundane as most people would think, you know, nutrition being as something that's really thrilling. Before we deep dive into some of the content, I do want to comment a little bit about an event that happened earlier this week. Um, Dr. Sarah Halberg, one of... Um, uh, just one of the giants in the low carbohydrate space um, finally passed after being diagnosed several years ago with stage four lung cancer. Um, I never got to meet her. Um, I've only been to one low carbohydrate conference and that was low carb Denver in 2020, the weekend, everything kind of blew up. Um, but, but somebody that really influenced my life and my understanding and just seemed like one of the kindest people you could ever meet. I know you've met her and worked with her in several capacities. I wonder if you could maybe say something or share a memory of, of, of Sarah with, with us in the audience. Yeah, I mean, it is so, so sad. Sarah was diagnosed with um, lung cancer at age 45. She has three children. At that time, I think the youngest one was seven. And she was supposed to live three years max and made it to almost five. Um, she, she was not only, I think, just a really magnificent human being, like a combination she was like a huge, big brain, super smart, but also humble, a collaborative problem solver, and and an incredibly compassionate, kind, thoughtful, giving person. Uh, and she, you know, I mean, professionally, she was the lead investigator on the most important controlled clinical trial um, on reversing type two diabetes. That's uh, going to be the longest ever trial. But she saw it through, I think, the two-year results at least and, and showing that you could actually reverse type, type 2 diabetes. And that was, was what she cared about most in the world, was helping people with diabetes and letting them know that type 2 diabetes could be reversed, uh, which you think like many of us and, and you have seen people, known people, now we know it is reversible, but the official medical um, doc, you know, dogma on type two diabetes was like, this is a progressive irreversible disease and 
all you can do is slow it down, but you can never stop it. And your life is taking insulin, trying to match that insulin to carbohydrate and getting progressively sicker. Sarah, um, she was the one to really stand up and say, no, type two diabetes is reversible. And she had figured this out because she had founded her own obesity clinic at, um, Indiana university, uh, one of their health centers. And she was so frustrated being a doctor that she almost wanted to give up because she didn't know anything. She just saw her patients getting fatter and sicker and she was delivering the conventional advice. And so she took time to read, uh, an entire history of obesity literature or, you know, much of it and figured out at a pretty early stage, I mean, long before my book was on the scene, or I think, I think she just figured it out for herself that, um, type two diabetes could in fact be reversed if you took out carbohydrates, you know, carbohydrates were what was provoking insulin and, and starting the whole cascade of illness. So she gave, in 2015, a TEDx talk that you should look up. Nearly 9 million people have watched it now. And it is, it is absolutely one of the best talks that I have ever seen. I watched it um, just, again, the other day, thinking about her and wanting to see her again. And she's just spectacular. I mean, everything about her that, is, that was so great, her energy, her her warmth, her enthusiasm, her incredible, relentless positivity, even in the face of so many obstacles. You know, she was up against the insulin industry and the American Diabetes Association was not happy with that speech. And and then, of course, even in, you know, in facing her own cancer, she was just relentlessly positive and, and, and wanted to contribute as much as possible as she could in her life. Um, so, you know, one of the memories that we're close together on the Nutrition Coalition, and if you go to our website, um, nutritioncoalition.us, I just last night we put up a, a tribute to her. She was incredibly interested in advocacy work and changing the guidelines. Um, and so we work quite closely side by side. She testified uh, at a, a briefing in for Congress. She went and gave testimony at one of the Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee meetings, um, and a link to that is on our website. And no matter, even though she had like four jobs and is the mother of three children, whenever she would call me, she would say, Nina, what can I do for you? <laughs> like, how can I help you? And she said this, you know, even in year five of having cancer, she'd say, tell me about you. How are your children? What, how, what's going, how can I be of help to you? She just was incredibly generous and, um, and, you know, a beautiful person, like a truly beautiful person. So I want to mention one other thing is that in honor of Sarah's legacy and also in honor of the thing that she cared about most, which was educating people about the possibility of reversing type two diabetes, um, I, together with um, her husband and um, also some other friends, are starting a nonprofit organization that's called Reversing Type 2. And it will be a legacy. It's a legacy project for Dr. Sarah Hallberg. Um, and you can find out about it if you go to my webpage or my Twitter feed. Currently, there's a match going on by a very generous donor who is matching each and every donation up to $1,000 for the entire month, this next month. So that just tells you how people, you know, how Sarah has moved people. Um, So anyway, she's a beautiful soul. It's a very sad, sad moment um, for our community to have lost her. Yeah, no, for sure. Very difficult. She gave um, an interview with Peter Atia, my, literally my favorite podcast I've ever heard. I thought it was amazing when I heard it and going back this week after hearing that she had passed and listened to it again. And I remember a few things that really stand out. One was, you know, as, as she was 
you know, kind of joking with her husband around the dinner table about maybe one day retiring and, you know, going on ski trips and things like that. And her, her, her son, I assume one of her kids was like, what are you talking about? You can't retire. Like your work is way too important. You have to keep doing what you're doing. And she mentioned what a standout moment that was in her career. And, and Peter asked her at one point, like, how do you decide how to manage your time? Because like, if I were to get that diagnosis, I would probably close the doors, stay home, only stay with my family. I wouldn't do anything to push the ball forward on, on things that I thought were important before getting a terminal, you know, cancer diagnosis. And she was the opposite. She was like, this is, yes, I need to spend time with my family, but also I have to continue doing this advocacy work because it is so important. I just think that speaks volumes to the type of person that she was. It's true. She would, she gave of herself, uh, right to the end. She was thinking and working and trying to finish papers. And, and, um, and at the same time, I want to say she was absolutely an incredibly devoted mother. She was, she, she was hugely involved in their lives. Christmas for her was like a Nash, like the most incredible holiday. And she would, she, she would like decorate the house from top to bottom and dress up as mother Christmas. And she wanted to create this magical moment for her family. I mean, she really had passion and spirit in everything that she did. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I never got a meteor, like I said, but I, I can totally understand all of that. Just seeing her content and what a kind soul she was that really shone forth very easy to, to see. So tragic loss. I, I really appreciate you talking about her. I know this is a difficult subject and a difficult time, but we'll definitely link some of that stuff in the book. And I, I again, I appreciate you going there. Um, I do want to talk about your book, uh, you know, preparing for this this conversation, we, you and I have already talked, we've already had you on the show and thinking like, wow, we really covered a lot of ground in the first episode. Where can we possibly go in this next episode? And again, just pulling open your book again, within like two or three pages of reading it again, you're like, oh, we, we haven't even scratched the surface on any of this. We could go in depth for hours about all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was really um, interested in a few questions that you have in your introduction. And I, I these are related questions and they're questions that you, um, you know, spend the book resolving and really talking about. And again, they're related, but they're different questions. I wondered if we might be able to go kind of one by one and pick through, and maybe you could kind of tell the story of why these are questions and how we were able to answer those. And so the first one is, um, why are we avoiding dietary fat? And, and the one that goes right along with it is, is that a good idea? Word for word from the introduction. <laughs> okay. Wow. I haven't read my own book in quite a while. Um, but you know, why are we avoiding dietary fat? Well, I think it's important to say we started avoiding saturated fat first, right? And people get confused about this. But Ansel Keys, who many people know, who developed a theory that saturated fat and dietary cholesterol cause heart disease, that all started in it really with the American Heart Association's official recommendation to adopt Ansel Keys' advice in 1961, okay? So this advice goes back now 60 years. But it wasn't until, but he, Ansel Keys, was not against the total amount of fat in the diet. He had kind of toyed with that idea early on in his career, um, but he he dropped it uh, and and decided to focus on saturated fat. So he wasn't against a what you know a diet that would have been normal in fat. And the best statistics we have on this is the diet was about forty percent fat in America when he was doing his work. So. Um, what changed and made us fear fat altogether uh, is that in 1970, the American Heart Association, based on zero data, decided to adopt an, an overall low-fat diet, so bringing down fat altogether. And this was based on the idea, just an idea, never tested, that we should avoid fat because fat was more dense in calories, right? Uh, you, you eat, there's three... All the food that you eat is made up of three macronutrients, fat, protein, and carbohydrate. So protein and carbohydrate are four to five calories per gram. Fat is nine calories per gram. And it was just at that point, um, you know, the obesity crisis had really not begun, but it had just begun to creep up. And so as a as kind of a measure of precaution, the American Heart Association said, we should just start reducing fat altogether. And... Um, and that was how the low-fat diet started in 1970. And then what really sealed the deal was that the U.S. Dietary Guidelines adopted the whole American Heart Association platform, and that started in 1980. So now the whole nation 
is really swinging over to a low-fat diet. All cattle are bred to be lean. Everybody's all that phenomenal, all the manufactured goods that took the fat out. When you take the fat out, you replace it with, um, in order because fat is what conveys texture and, and flavor and allows a food to taste good, but it had to be replaced by, usually it was just carbohydrate, some kind of carbohydrate. So we got like the low fat snack well phenomenon. And, um, and you know, there were all these, there was this whole tip away from fat and to filling it in with carbohydrates. Also, you know, if you're avoiding food like fatty foods, you are, or if you're, you know, foods that are higher in fat, like regular fat dairy, right? Or you're switched to low fat milk or something. Um, that it's the fat combined with the protein that is satiating that actually fills you up. So if you are not satiated, you're eating meals that all of a sudden have you hungry, you know, soon afterwards and people start to eat more and they are, um, and they're replacing the fat with carbohydrates. This is such a bizarre story because, you know, when we we got to like the 1980s was sort of the height of the non-fat diet, no fat at all. People are like people like me growing up, you know, in this era, we are, we are, you know, no fat and there's salad dressing. You're trying to convince yourself that you could just have vinegar on your salad and that's fine. (laughs) Skinless chicken breasts and, you know, whatever crazy stuff we did. And we convinced ourselves that this tasteless, awful food was, was, you know, desirable rice cakes for dinner. So, and then, um, so the first ever clinical trial actually looking at the low fat diet was, um, were some trials funded by NI, the National Institutes of Health, NIH, um, that were done in Seattle on Boeing employees. Um, those were done in the, I think the early, I think it's the eighties, um, late eighties, early nineties. Sorry, I don't remember the dates, but those studies show that people did not get any healthier and did not lose weight on a low-fat diet. So those studies were what we call silence, silent studies. Nobody quoted them. Nobody referred to them. They weren't included in any review papers. They were just dropped. And actually, I talked to the lead investigator, investigator for my book. He's no longer alive. But he talked about the reaction to these papers just like there was nothing. It was like they didn't exist in the field. Um, and that is often the story of nutrition science, just as a little um, tangent here, which is that inconvenient findings are just contradictory findings are just ignored. But then they started the Women's Health Initiative study in 1996. That was on nearly 50,000 women that lasted seven years. And that study, many people think that the intervention group and the control group ended up looking too much alike to actually have that be a test of the low-fat diet. But it was intended to test low-fat diet. The women in that study all just got a copy of the dietary guidelines and were told, follow them. So, um, And at the end of that, there were absolutely zero positive results, um, So, or in the sense that the diet could not be shown to have helped anybody avoid any kind of disease, not any kind of cancer for which the trial had been actually powered, which is unusual, not heart disease, not diabetes, not obesity. So... At that point, you can see in like the expert documents and the dietary guidelines, you can see them saying things like, oh, we can see that fat, uh, low fat diet causes hyper triglycidemia. I'm not sure if I've got that word right, but it's basically saying the low fat diet is increasing your risk of heart disease. And which is true. When you go on a low fat diet, your your triglycerides tend to rise because you're increasing carbohydrates and your HDL goes down. And this is this is in these expert documents um, buried in there. And then there's another quote that I found where they say, you know, we should be wary about adopting a low fat diet because diet because it'll tend to make people increase carbohydrates and that could lead to obesity, which is exactly what happened. Um, and I will just say for people watching who are thinking, wait, we didn't actually reduce fat from 1980 to today um, or 1972 to today. And, the re- and that is not true. We, so the low-fat diet has always been measured as, not, as a percent of total calories. So in terms of percentages, are the the amount of fat and the the portion of fat in the diet has gone down dramatically. So 
I'm not going to remember the statistic, but it's like 25% um, or so. It's been a huge drop. And that's largely because, so people are right when they say we haven't changed the total amount of fat we've eaten. That's true. But we, as a population, eat about 275 more calories per person. So, and all those calories are carbohydrates, all of them. So as a portion of our total caloric intake, fat has decreased. So these rumblings in the expert documents about our national policy on fat and the same things going on in the American Heart Association because those two those two document the two leading nutrition policies in the country they're very closely tied together all the experts on both those boards they're all they're very much always in line with each other they're starting to think oh we got it wrong on the low fat diet so they sort of they start actually as early as like 1995 or 2000 in the dietary guidance. They just drop any reference to low fat. If you go on their website and if you go on the American Heart Association website, you cannot find the words low fat. They are no longer endorsing the low fat diet. That is not there, and they are trying desperately to kind of move away from that position. Um, but you know we still kind of de facto have a low fat recommendation because, or at least as you and I would understand a low fat diet, because, um, you know, our official guidelines, and this is reflected in school lunches, programs, you know, food for the military, cafeteria food, uh, all the institutional food out there that, um, almost all of it follows the guidelines or is literally must follow the guidelines. Like in the case of school lunches, your fat, the fat content of the meal cannot be above 35%, wow. which is, you know, the, the definition of low fat has kind of varied in the scientific literature, but it's been, a, it's been, you know, between 20, 25, 30, 35%. That's, that's a low fat diet. So it's just been this, it's like this, it became dogma based on no science. And now we can't really back out of it. Yeah. I don't remember it, them. the story. Yeah, I don't remember them releasing a press release or anything saying, hey, we're going to back away from these guidelines. It just gets buried in a report that they just, it's nothing. They don't mention it. They don't say anything. Well, see, that's exactly the point, right? So you can dig into the report and and find the chair of the Dietary Guideline Committee saying, oh, you know, there is no, uh, there's no advice for a low-fat diet anymore. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? You know, where... Where is the press release? Where is the huge multi-million dollar campaign, information campaign, letting America know that this is not good advice and that it's it's no longer our advice? And why? Because they found that it increased the risk of heart disease. Wow. So, I mean, by the way, it also increases the risk of obesity because people shift their diet over to grains and sugars instead. But... Um, but and and thus diabetes as well. But um, yeah, there has been no there's no announcement about the shift, and and it really is a tragedy because we continue. Most people continue to think that cutting out fat they is is a good for their health. They fear fat. Not too much salad dressing. Not too much sauce. Definitely no cream. And um, and, and I think that's you know still what the widely held belief. Yeah. Wow. And that's only if you're willing to read those nutritional guidelines. I don't think the economists called the nutritional guidelines, the uh, nutritional thriller, nutrition thriller, not, not, yeah. not so much. It's pretty dry. You have to be really interested in this stuff to appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to kind of like be a masochist. I mean, I have read them all, but I mean, it's just, it's so incredibly tedious, but, uh, but it doesn't matter. Even if you don't read, th- reach them, read them, even if you don't read them, they reach you. Like your kids are going to school and getting school meals. Your elderly loved one in a nursing home is getting food based on the guidelines. Your, um, you know, if you know somebody in the, in the military, their mess hall food and what they're instructed to eat, what's good and bad is based on the guidelines. There's just so many instances like that where people basically captive populations um, even if you, you know, your doctor, your nurse, your dietitian, your nutritionist, all those people, um, their professional societies, they consider the guidelines the gold standard. So they, you know, they teach the guidelines. Yeah. 
Wow. That's, that's why, I mean, we talked about this in our first episode. It's like, if I decide that I don't want to follow the guidelines because I've read your book, I've been in this world for many years, like that's fine for me, but it still has lots of implications that may or may not impact me directly, but it has impact all over. And that's why these guidelines are so critical and, and, and definitely need to be changed. And it's so bizarre. It's just like we read in the intro. All you're asking to do is have guidelines that are based on sound science. I was trying to think of like right. a parallel to this. Like, do we have a coalition that makes sure that all planes that fly commercially with hundreds of people are based on sound you know, aerodynamic principles that actually fly correctly. Like, I don't know if that's overly simplistic, but it seems like, like houses need to be built on sound principles of building construction. Like those, we don't need those. That's like common sense yet. We need that in nutrition. It's so bizarre. Well, I mean, it's, you know, if a plane is not built correctly, you know, because it crashes and, and if a house falls down or a bridge falls down, there's an investigation into why that happened. The problem with chronic disease is that it happens over the course of many, many years, and there are many places to point the finger of blame. And what to me is really um, upsetting, and this is something Dr. Sarah Halber talked about in her TED Talk so convincingly. She talks about, because she you know, ran an obesity clinic, and she would she said, I can tell you about my patients. They come in with their, they've weighed their food. They come in with their food diaries. They're trying as hard as they can and they are gaining weight or they are not losing weight. Um, as my friend said, she said, I, I, I dieted all myself all the way up to 400 pounds. (laughs) And so, but the, the blame is, I think, tragically, uh, placed on individuals who feel like they're not trying, they're told they're not exercising enough, you're not trying hard enough, you must be cheating, um, is, is sort of the message doctors give to their patients. And it is the message that is sort of out there in the media. Um, I know now we're, there's a campaign not to fat shame, and, and, and actually people are sort of backed off talking about obesity whatsoever. But it needs to be discussed uh, and it needs to be discussed in different terms because we cannot fat shame people anymore. I mean, if there is any, if we need to place blame, as um, Sarah said, she says, you know, we should really be talking about our own advice, referring to herself as a doctor. So, um, and so just to answer your question, I mean, it's it's very hard to, uh, it has been very hard to make a convincing case that it is our guidelines that have been making us sick and, and giving us diabetes and giving us uh, and, and doing nothing, say, to prevent heart disease. But the science in the last 10 years, and this is what makes me somewhat hopeful, although not entirely because remember that silenced study um, and what we're seeing is a continuation of that. But there is a huge body now of science, good, rigorous clinical trials showing that when people reduce their carbohydrates and really turn the guidelines upside down, turn the food pyramid upside down, they get healthy. So that science is currently being ignored, which is astonishing. Like, how do you ignore now a hundred clinical trials? How do you ignore that science? But I will tell you that the dietary guideline committee that was, you know, published the most recent iteration, they ignored all that literature. And it was only our group who was like raising their hand to say, Hey, how can you, <laughs> here are the studies, how can you ignore all the studies? Crazy. They, they could only find one low-carb study, and that was because one of the Dietary Guideline Committee members herself was an author on that study. Wow. Wow. That's I mean, crazy. I don't know if that's, yeah. So I think it's just much harder. It's not a simple crash of a plane. It's a long-term chronic disease, and there are, you know, there's many ways to play the blame game. And Science is not the only voice here. You have the voice of the pharmaceutical companies, the food companies. You have you have so many other interests uh, that are the status quo defending itself. So you have you have many other voices that are far louder and more well funded than the than the voice of science. Um, you know what is you know we can all debate science now. There's a lot of question marks about how even to judge science. I think. Um, you know, in our current climate. But uh, that's why it's been very hard to have this conversation about um, what causes chronic disease. 
Yeah, definitely. No, it's such a good point that you made um, about the industry and in any other science, I've heard you made this point too, where like follow the money, the money will tell you where things are going. And it's almost like we've forgotten that with nutrition science. Once you see it, it's so obvious, you know, where the money is coming from, but it's just bizarre in nutrition that you have so much less of that, or that's kind of less apparent. You've mentioned a little bit um, about saturated fat versus total fat. And so I want to go to the next question in your intro, which is- Wait, sorry. No, go ahead. Casey, can I interrupt you? Can I just make one other point about that? Because it's really important about the money. Um, And there's just two points I want to make. One is that the reporters covering nutrition tend to come out, like the person at the Washington Post, she was a cookbook writer. The lead writer on nutrition, like writing the op on the op-ed page was a cookbook writer. Um, they tend to come out of the lifestyle sections or cookbooks. They're just not reporters. They haven't come off the covering, you know, the big banks, uh, you know, they, they haven't been trained to follow the money. It's just not part of the zeitgeist of nutrition reporting, which is sort of been reporting light, L-I-T-E light. Um, so that's part of why we don't see it. And, um, the other thing I just wanted to mention is that, um, I, along with, um, some other, authors just published the first ever um, paper that goes through all of the financial conflicts of interest of the Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee, because that committee is one of the only committees in the world that doesn't disclose their conflicts of interest. You know, any guideline committee has to disclose, except for this committee doesn't. And so we found that 95% of the people on the committee had at least one tie to industry and more than half had over 20 ties <laughs> to com- companies like Nestle, you know, Monsanto, um, Ilse, which is a trade group for giant multinational food corporations. I mean, it really, Dannon, um, you know, it really is a really striking finding and nobody's done that before. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that we're doing to try to bring some greater transparency to this process and and make people aware. Wow. That's crazy. We just lost Monsanto as a show sponsor, but, uh, that's okay. (laughs) Um, did, did even that surprise you? Like you must've figured that most of these people would have some ties to industry, but even going through all of those people, did even that surprise you how many ties there were? Not really, because I, my, uh, our group, the Nutrition Coalition, had done um, its own research, and we had published several articles about the vast conflicts of interest on the committee. And I can tell you what happened to that. First of all, the media didn't cover it. They weren't, they weren't interested. And number two, all of our links um, disappeared. So, Or not all of them, but many of them disappear. There's a lot of and, – and worrisomely, many of them disappeared from – the Wayback Machine. I don't know if you know that, but you're supposed to, it's it's a you're supposed to it's supposed to permanently capture images of the internet in case things are deleted. But it, it turns out that really powerful organizations like the U.S. government and this group Ilse that I just mentioned, they can disappear things forever. You know, they can disappear stuff so it never shows up, even though you know it's been around for years. It can they can make it go away. So the advisory board participation, all kinds of disclosures, things just, they vanish. Crazy. And it is, it really, it is disturbing. I have to say, there's just a lot of, what is it? Just huge amounts of money that are going into kind of erasing this unholy connection between scientists and industry. Wow. And it's the normal person on the street that has to suffer with the consequences of all that. Let me tell you, they're not looking out for you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So disheartening. (laughs) Crazy. Um, Okay, so I do want to get to that next question. Is there a healthy benefit to avoiding saturated fat and eating vegetable oils instead? Okay. Short and long answer, no. Um, And there's, we could talk about the saturated fat part of it, which is that saturated fats do not cause heart disease, as Ansel Keys claimed they did. There There are now... Um, over the past decade, there have been more than 20 review papers going back and looking through all those silent loss studies that had been done, but ignored at the time, testing Ansel Keys' hypothesis. And these 20 review papers have all concluded that, that there's, there's no uh, consistent, rigorous data to support the idea that saturated fats cause heart disease. One of these papers was authored by 
um, former members of Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee, some of the top people, nutrition experts in the country, and was published in a super prestigious journal, uh, the Journal of Cardiologists, called the Journal of American College of Cardiology. It was named one of the top papers of the year in 2020 when it came out. And all of that literature, or maybe it was 2019, all of that literature has been ignored um, by our expert groups. But it should give any common person the um, the consolation to know that eating full fat dairy, eating regular cheese, eating um, you know meat, eating coconut oil, coconut butter, all of that, those are safe, healthy foods that will not give you heart disease. And other ideas that saturated fats cause other diseases is just it's just never been based on any evidence at all. So saturated fats gets a get out of jail free card. Of course, we've been eating them since we became human, so they're a traditional natural food. Um, vegetable oils, on the other hand, were um, basically were invented um, to be lubricants for machinery in the Industrial Revolution in and um, the late 19, the late eighteen hundreds, and then became a food stiff a food stuff with the introduction of Crisco. This is a whole history that I researched and and wrote for my book. Um, it came into the food supply with Crisco. It then, in the 1940s, vegetable oils were introduced. And vegetable oils have always had the problem of being uh, inherently very unstable. And what does that mean? It means that they go rancid. And they um, and what is rancidity? It is it is the oxidation of that uh, that fat. Um, and and and. Oxidation is, you know, why you've heard so much about anti antioxidants because oxidation, when you eat these products, it causes inflammation in your body. Um, inflammation, as we know, drives heart disease and um, and drives other diseases as well. So these vegetable oils, even though they're known to lower your LDL cholesterol, um, they have all these other very negative effects on you. And especially when they're heated, which is the way that many of us, even if we're really being careful, still encounter them because all restaurants use them. They just use regular old soybean oil is the most common one used in the United States. When you heat them for cooking, frying, or just cooking, they oxidize like crazy. They produce hundreds of uh, oxidation products. Some of them are known toxins. They're hugely unstable they um, get absorbed in your body. They pass through the blood-brain barrier. This has been shown by scientists who have analyzed fast food. It doesn't have to be fast food. It could be a high-end restaurant, really. Um, and so they're dangerous. Some of those oxidation products are known toxins, including something called aldehydes, which uh, are known to um, cause cancer, heart disease. I mean, they are really dangerous and nasty products. I mean, especially when they're heated, I think that they're, the, the data on that is, is enough to scare any, any normal person. So this idea that we would be replacing a natural um, type of fat, saturated fats, with these dangerous, noxious vegetable oils, um, which are a in highly industrialized product, that, you know, it's amazing that that has made sense to experts. For so It's kind of incredible to think that ever made sense. Um, but of course, it made sense at the time because we, you know, the 1950s and 60s were a time where there was so much belief in technology and there was like such a desire to uh, sort of shed old traditions and welcome in a kind of science, a science medical thinking about uh, food, which had you know, never been in the domain of the doctor's office. It had just, you know, it had always been passed on by women in cookbooks um, mainly, and from mother to daughter. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons that I think we were particularly susceptible to all this in America is that we're a nation of immigrants. So, you know, where was the grandmother to tell you, you know, what are you using that vegetable oil? <laughs> she was back in the home country. And we, as a nation of immigrants, when everybody wanted to adopt the new customs and one of those customs very successfully marketed to American housewives was to use vegetable oils in their cooking and frying and baking. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you do such a great job in chapter nine of your book, just telling this absolute horror story of what can happen to these oils when they get heated. I remember one of the proud days of my life. I was 15 years old. I got promoted to be fry chef at Neil's Charcoal Broiler. 
a very, very proud day of my career. And I remember being over these fryers, and I think we were supposed to empty them every few days, which we never did. They would go for weeks and weeks without getting emptied. And they would create like this gunk, this like hardened gunk all around these fryers that, that my skin was already awful anyway as a teenager. It got way worse in the smell. You could just never get rid of the smell. Um, luckily, I got fired <laughs> a few months later. But um, yeah, it, it was absolutely terrible. And to think that people are standing over these fry tanks and breathing and, and working with these chemicals that are being heated over and over and over and over and over for an entire day for weeks is insane. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's, there is some evidence to suggest that those workers are more likely to get lung cancer. Um, and there is, uh, there's amazing, an amazing story that I tell about how the, um, you know, that hardened, those like oxidized oils, First of all, when they harden, that's the same stuff as like a paint polymer. That's what you're eating. And, and the, the, the gunk is, can build up and clog drains and, and solidify on walls. And, the, and then other oxidation products would seep into to uniforms. And they were so volatile that uh, in driving them, those uniforms to the cleaner, there would be spontaneous combustion fires in the backs of the trucks taking the uniforms to the cleaners and then even after they had been washed, they would spontaneously combust in the dryers. So you're talking, I mean, imagine that in your body, Ugh. what it is doing in your body and everything your body is doing to try to combat all of that oxidation and inflammation. So, you know, I think that, and there's other interesting science that I don't know as well, but is, is about how um, vegetable oils contribute to obesity. Yeah. But, um, Listen, I mean, it's, it's, I think if there's, you know, two things to get out of the diet, one of them is vegetable oils and the other is, is to, is to, to reduce the amount of carbohydrates. So like a hot, to move out of a high carbohydrate diet. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And if you ask me every 20 seconds, I kind of oscillate between which one is more important, but to get <laughs> right. both of them out is just so critical. And luckily they're mostly found in a lot of processed crap. Yeah, but I do want to say just one thing that is an argument that has been made to me that, um, you know, I don't know where exactly I stand on this, but a lot of people who, I mean, vegetable oils are cheap. And when you're talking about uh, somebody who's on a budget is trying to go on a low-carb diet and they can't afford butter, certainly not tallow or lard or these other, you know, we can't even buy them in the supermarket – and, and I know many low-carb practitioners who will say, look, my patients successfully lose a lot of weight and they use vegetable oils in their cooking. And um, so I don't know, you know how that's affecting other aspects of their health, but it seems to me that if the choice is, uh, you know, vegetable oils or nothing or not having any fat in your diet, I'm not sure that I would make that recommendation for people who really can't afford, who can't afford anything else. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't know. I was just at the store buying butter and it wasn't terribly expensive and you can get different types. And so I would still lean people that way. I do worry about that oxidation. When I think of oxidation, I think of rust and think of rust inside and outside of the body when we're consuming yeah. these oils. And yeah, I mean, I definitely understand there's so many different socioeconomic issues that people have and it's not exactly an equal playing field. Um, but yeah, for the most part, if people can get any of that stuff out of their diet, just so much better. I'm sure you agree. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, and I think people don't people don't even know, and this is something to teach people, but they don't know that there's all this fat that they throw away. There is. I remember coming stumbling across this great advertisement that came out during World War II in um, the American press, saying, but from the government saying, "Don't be a fat waster," because they wanted to save the fat to send it to the troops who were fighting. And I thought, well, first of all, it seemed incredible that we would we would not at that point, you know, like, Oh, of course you throw away the fat, but there are all these ways that you can um, acquire cooking fat by just not throwing it away. Like don't throw away your bacon grease. Don't, you know, don't throw away the fat that comes, um, that, that drips off from cooking, you know, anything like all of that fat is reusable. 
Yeah, that's a really good tip. Bacon grease is one of our favorite ways to cook. And you cook a batch, you've got tons of it. You know, it turns hard, which means it's saturated. And that's a really good one to reuse over time. I think that's a really good point. Um, One other point you made in the introduction um, is about kind of an oil that's a little bit in the middle, kind of between a saturated fat and a vegetable oil, which is polyunsaturated. Is olive oil truly the key to a disease-free long life? Yeah, I have a chapter on the Mediterranean diet um, that I've been meaning to turn into an academic paper for, oh, about six years. But olive oil is in this kind of halfway station between saturated fats that have no double bonds, therefore no no opportunity to, it, it can't it can't attach to oxygen, no oxygen, you know, it can't oxidate, it can't oxidate. Vegetable oils are polyunsaturated. Poly means many double bonds, lots of opportunities for oxidizing. Olive oil is monounsaturated, one double bond. Okay, that means one double bond per fatty acid molecule, right? And that means one opportunity to open up an oxygen, you know, to, to attach to an oxygen. So that is much less oxidation. And in fact, if you look at the studies uh, comparing uh, like butter to olive oil to corn oil, Olive oil always comes out looking sort of in between in terms of, you know, oxidation and other kinds of effects. You see that that olive oil sort of performs in between. So I think olive oil is a great oil to use like for a salad dressing, um, probably not for cooking even because, you know, why use that when you can use some saturated fat, which has no oxidation. But is olive oil some kind of life-saving, um, you know, miracle product? I could find no evidence for that. And I will say that the olive oil industry, which um, they submitted all the studies they had and all the documentation they had to try to get a health claim with the um, Food and Drug Administration, and it was not convincing. It turned out not to be convincing. You know, they they have little studies that show possible mechanisms or they have studies showing association but not causation, but they really have not been able to prove anything about olive oil. Yeah, so the other thing to say about the other thing to say about olive oil is that you know most of it that you buy if you buy a cheap olive oil in the supermarket um, or even a not cheap olive oil, a lot of it is adulterated. So you're actually getting some kind of nut oil instead. Uh, that's a really good point. I don't think we have a ton of really pure olive oil products here. And if you find one, stick with it. But you're right. I, that would be an oil that I would treat very, um, very carefully and definitely make sure not to overheat for, you know, high heat for long periods of time and things like that. Maybe is, you know, something over, you know, a salad or something like that would be totally fine. Right. Yeah. Another- also store. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say store it in a dark place, a dark bottle, like do not, you know, don't leave it out in the open because even just sunlight and, and will, will oxidize uh, an oil. Right. We want to be thinking light, heat, and air, correct? The three things that will really oxidize, especially the heat. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, speaking of things that we think will save everybody and controversial topics, you wrote an entire chapter, which as far as I know, has not seen the light of day, which is all about omega threes. I sure hope to be able to read that one of these days. (laughs) So fascinating. Thanks for reminding me. (laughs) Well, I think what's, um, so it turns out, you know, if you look at the large clinical trials on omega-3s, that omega-3 supplementation, which was, you know, also considered that was going to be what saved you from heart disease, taking those EPA, DHA capsules. I don't know. I think it's maybe not as popular anymore, but it was, you know, maybe a decade ago, it was really thought to be that was a solution to preventing heart disease. And it goes back to studies on the Eskimos. Um, it was just this hypothesis. Why did the Eskimos not get heart disease? Well, they had high omega-3 content of their diet because they ate so much, um, you know, so much sea food from the sea. So, but that they did all these trials on them, large randomized controlled clinical trials, again, the gold standard, and they just could not find a difference between the intervention and the control group. And we, you know, we don't have enough time to go into all that in detail and people will dispute that. But, um, but, you know, it's not to say that omega-3s in fish could not be, uh, cannot be helpful and eating fatty fish is, um, I think is a good idea, but Taking capsules is just, it just, that itself, even if it's high quality, purified EPA, DHA is not, is not been shown to help at all. And, you know, to make those capsules, they have to rake through the ocean and clean up all the small fish in the ocean, thereby depriving the larger fish and all the birds and everybody, all the animals that 
you know, eat smaller fish, um, you know, it devastates their food supply. So it, it kind of travels up the food chain. And, and um, if you take away their, the whole supply of small fish that is at the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things that like when we were paid to sell supplements, it was like, no question. Everybody needs an omega-3. Everybody needs a multivitamin. Right. Why not? Right. Why not? Let's cover all the bases, give you all kinds of different vitamins and minerals. And surely this will help patch up and repair anything that you're deficient in. It's just by and large, from what I can tell, just a waste of money (laughs) at best case. And they're not, yeah. And they're not inexpensive either. Right. Right. So, um, and actually if you think, I mean, they, 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 they could actually be harmful if they've gone rancid. Omega-3s are polyunsaturated, so many double bonds. So they will also um, they can also go rancid, and they can also have a, an ill effect in the body. So it's not that they're, they're not just benign. They can actually do harm. Yeah, incredibly fragile. I've wondered about that quite a bit. Um, before we let you go, I did want you to comment a little bit about a piece that you wrote recently about Vegan Fridays. So this is a thing in your part of the world. Uh, vegan Fridays are nutritionally risky. So uh, what is going on with Vegan Fridays? You guys already do Meatless Monday, correct? Like, right. What? What? How many other days of the week can we not eat meat? So this is in New York City, um, of course. Our, we have a new mayor named Eric Adams who is himself a vegan, although it was discovered after he became mayor that he does treat himself to fish uh, and um, and at expensive restaurants. But I think he is a committed vegan and feels like that is his way of staying healthy. And New York City in general is uh, has a public health community that is very much against meat. And so now they announced uh, vegan Fridays for children. This is one of the first things that, that the mayor did. And so, you know, based on absolutely zero evidence, right? What is the evidence that children can thrive on a vegan diet? The evidence is zero. And in fact, there's evidence to the contrary, which I talk about in my article, which is that some of the few only clinical trials on meat were on children in uh, poor communities in in Africa, and they found that just a small amount of meat made a huge difference in terms of cognition, academic ability, and also social socialization, leadership skills on the playground. It was astonishing. And the meat was far superior to other, just giving the kids enough calories or giving them dairy. So they had comparisons to make and the meat outperformed. Um, And this was a two-year-long randomized controlled clinical trial done by um, one of the professors is at, at Sacramento, University of Sacramento, California, University of California at Sacramento. So, and there's, there, so there's really no evidence that children can flourish on this diet or even be safe. And so the diet, as we know, as many people know, the vegan diet is also lacking in a number of nutrients that are just critical for growth, for life, um, you know, vitamin B12, omega-3s, um, B, uh, B vitamins, vitamin D. I mean, there's they're, they're, these are we think we can get them from plant foods, but we are not getting the the version that we can absorb. Um, and the same is true for iron. You think you can get iron from spinach? There's Popeye telling you it makes you strong, but in fact, the iron from spinach is not absorbable for most people, or can only be absorbed in a very small amounts. Um, and it's not the heme. The kind of iron your body absorbs comes from red meat, um, mainly. So that would be heme iron. Anyway, I made these points in my article, and it was an op-ed and that came out in the New York Daily News, and I just heard nothing. There was no pickup. There was no conversation about it. Um, you know, school school meals are often the only source of nutrition that poor kids get. And now you've got there, you know, you've got a Friday with no nutrition, no no meat in the diet, and then a weekend, and then Mondays so you've got four days. They may be potentially not getting any nutrition that they need. Um, and so, you know, I think that I think that the people advising Mayor Adams are are just not educated on on why children might need meat to grow and thrive. And it's really sad and unfortunate. I can tell you that the Meatless Mondays movement which is, you know, many cities, many school systems have picked up, that is, um, that's backed by, it seems to be a, an effort almost, you know, almost an entire, like an industry effort. There's 
34 companies, um, that's been wiped off the internet too, but I've published that, that 34 companies that would all stand to benefit if meat is removed, right? So if you get rid of meat, you're having pasta or mushrooms or beans or something instead. And these are all these companies that um, are pushing meatless Mondays. So they're, they're, they're pushing a kind of, uh, you know, a popular um, favored, currently favored diet, but it's, it's an entirely industry driven uh, effort. Um, so I don't, I think that most people and most public health officials are just not aware of this. Wow. And, and as a parent, I might think like, okay, you know, vegan Friday, fine. I know my kid's going to eat more broccoli today. They might get a salad, but that's just not necessarily the reality of what these kids are eating. It's not just like vegetables. It can be all kinds of stuff that is really not great. <laughs> When I look at the menus that they were posting uh, on their vegan Fridays and meatless Mondays, what I found is that the kids were literally fed things like um, like chips instead. They, they it was it was so it was such a bunch of junk food that they were getting. They were not getting fresh vegetables. They they were just getting zero nutrition Nestle products or something. It was it was it was startling, and 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 you know you combine that with breakfast, which poor children get, um, if you, if you qualify, if your income is low enough and, and what is qualifies under the dietary guidelines is donuts for breakfast. So just imagine you're getting donuts for breakfast and chips and some other bready something for, for lunch. It's, it's just a wonder that kids can do well at all in school. Well, it's crazy. Little Jimmy just has such a tough time concentrating in school. So let's diagnose him as ADD when he's seven so we can get him on prescription. So that'll help his focus. And then he might not sleep so great. Let's get him on Ambien so he can sleep and then everything's fine. That is unfortunately our model. I mean, it's, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it's really awful. And I think that what just shocks me more than anything is the lack of curiosity. Like when my piece came out, did, would not is it not possible there would be a single public health official who would might be curious, might want to know, hey, maybe we're doing the wrong thing. Do you know in Belgium that it is people can be sent to jail for raising their kids on a vegan diet? And that the vegan diet as I mentioned in my article, that it's it's not considered appropriate for um, growing children in in uh, t- at least two European countries. They do not allow it. You'd think that a public health official would sort of pick up on that and and at least inquire. But it's astonishing to me that we're at this point where there really is no more debate, no more discussion. Um, you know, I think that the 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 space for conversation on this topic has really shrunk over the last few years, at least. Yeah, that's crazy. Oh, I had the opportunity last week to talk to Gary Taubes for the first time, and he mentioned you specifically along the same lines. Like, there's got to be somebody with, you know, not much to do at the NIH who is sitting around bored, and he can go to building 25C, room 110, and look up papers by himself, and he mentioned you in particular. And why, why can't somebody look at this and just question it, just bring it out to light. Like you said, like it doesn't have to be proven right or wrong, but nobody's even giving it the consideration. So it never gets the light of day. It's so bizarre. Yeah. I think there, I think that when there has been a, you know, a dominant narrative about something for so long, um, and people who've spoken out about it have been, uh, have been punished. Like, and their punishment is is public and 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 obvious. So, not just me, not just Gary, not just uh, the various things that have been done to us, um, and and it's public, but academics particularly, they um, they get punished. Their papers aren't published, or they'll get disinvited from conferences, or the various ways that academics can be can be um, can be sort of canceled. <laughs> People in the field see that, and so then they self-censor. You know, we're we're seeing the same thing in several fields of science right now. But this has been going on for decades in nutrition, and so when I was re- writing my book and and Gary as well with it, you know, when he was studying the history, you see that there is a lot of debate over the science and open discussion up until about the mid nineteen eighties, and then it's just all shut down. And you see, even when he started writing books, there was a lot. He was you know the the cover story of the New York Times Magazine. Um, he was frequently in the pages of the New York Times. I was published in the New York Times and and you know many other uh, newspapers. But I now 
you don't see that anymore. And so I think that people understand there, there are certain, there are certain no go topics now. I mean, this is something that's happening broadly in our culture where there's certain conversations you can't have because you will be canceled or punished in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally understand being, you know, an academic and being afraid of that. If that's your career and you know, you're going to get shut down if you say anything, I respect that. That's tough. It would be hard to be in that position. And so this question for you personally, like to fight this fight for the better part of 20 years to be after this and, and, you know, taking the flack that you take, taking some mean comments on Twitter every now and again, um, you know, not having your papers reviewed, like what, what makes you first of all, be optimistic about the future and what makes you keep going with this? Why, why not just say, you know what? See you guys. I did what I did. Like read my book or not. I'm going to ride off into the sunset and do whatever I need to do. Like what, what makes you continue with this fight? Well, I think maybe the same reason you're in it and, and to, to go back to Dr. Sarah Halberg, uh, who was such a, you know, a really tireless, relentless fighter, you feel an absolute dedication to the truth and having it known and not just any truth, but a truth that affects the lives of hundreds of millions of people and the, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are suffering needlessly who uh, are because information is not available to them because they're being told the wrong thing. So for me, I feel like it's a great privilege that I have to have to to have a voice in on such an important topic and I I don't think I can give it up. <laughs> and <laughs> until we really do make some progress in getting this issue uh moving it along so that more people are healthy. Yeah. I, I'm sure that you have this experience. I know when I see the outpouring of love for um, for Sarah, and and I've been lucky enough to have it too. Like the people who write you and tell you you saved my life, you I reversed my diabetes. I was 200 pounds overweight. I was recovering from a heart attack and terrified of another one. I mean, all of those people. When if you can help somebody at that level, how can you turn away from that? Yeah. No, I completely agree. You can't unsee those types of results. And, um, you know, I have just seen it with so many people, not only with me personally in my life and encountering your work and really diving in, but also the people that, you know, all the seminars that we've done and all the messages we shared with people and teaching people about different types of fats and how to get healthy. And then hearing that, you know what, their husband ended up getting healthy and his whole family ended up deciding to try the same thing. And it's like, yeah, we might not be changing the world, but there are so many individual stories that are so moving and beautiful that it really makes all of this worthwhile. And we really just love and respect you for that. And for, you know, really being such a warrior in this field. And, and again, one or two mean comments, I probably would have quit a long time ago, but you've been able to push through. And, um, I think it, it, it does, you know, maybe not always seem like it, but does create a tremendous amount of change, even on an individual level. And so we're so grateful for you and for your work. Um, if you could just That's tell nice you, yeah, I, but I, mean, I want to say you too. I mean, you too, and all the practitioners out there, everybody is making a difference and it, it, it takes more than a village. It, it takes many villages to move something along. So everybody is joined in this. Yeah, totally agree. And if it comes from the ground, that's fine. It might take a little longer, but again, on the individual level, you start changing lives and those people have questions they're going to bring to their doctors. Sometime there has to be a tipping point. So um, really looking forward to that and definitely will stay optimistic to that. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, tell our listeners where they can find you and find your work and connect with you and also where they can find ways to donate to the cause for um, Dr. Sarah Halberg. Dr. Sarah Halberg is a GoFundMe campaign right now and it is, uh, I've got it posted on Twitter and my Facebook page. On Twitter, I'm at Big Fat Surprise. Um, Facebook is just my name. And um, so that's how you can donate to that. There's, as I said, there's currently a match for any donation up to $1,000, which is fantastic. And uh, from my work, I'm, I am best found at ninateichels.com. I'm going to be launching very soon a Substack newsletter, so I will soon have a sign-up for that, and that's where I'm going to be devoting quite a lot of energy. 
And there's um, there's also still the nutritioncoalition.us, and that's a little bit in flux right now, but I'll, I'll be announcing that um, a little later. Gotcha. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Nina Teichels, it's such an honor to talk with you again. We really appreciate you and all of your work and for moving this message forward in any way possible. Um, it's just, it, it, it really is um, amazing to find people like Sarah, people like yourself, and all the others who are moving this message forward. So we're so grateful for you and for your work. And thank you so much for um, taking some time to be on our show again today. We're really grateful for you. Thank you, Casey. I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you. Awesome. It's been an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas of your body, it's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.